When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the first episode of Before They Were Beatles Presents The Forgotten Beatles, in which we turn the spotlight on Pete Best. We all know the story of John, Paul, George and Ringo, the Beatles. But there are other tales still left to tell. Who were Pete, Ken, Norman, Johnny, Colin, Rod, Stuart, Eric and more? And what part did they all play in the story of the greatest band in rock history? These are the stories of the Forgotten Beatles. I'm your host, Alan J. Porter. Episode 1, Pete Best. Pub quiz time. What's the name of the drummer who played the largest number of live gigs as a member of the Beatles? Despite what many may think, the answer isn't Ringo Starr. It's Pete Best. Part 1, Casbar Days. Pete Best was born in Madras, India to his Anglo-Indian mother Mona and well-known Liverpool boxing promoter Johnny Best, who was stationed in India during the latter days of World War II. Well, that's the official story. For Pete's father was actually marine engineer Donald Peter Scanland. Pete was born when Mona was 17, before her marriage to John Best. Her oldest son's official birth name was Randolph Peter Scanland. And so it remained for the first two years of his life. But after his marriage to Alice Mona Shaw, Johnny Best accepted the boy as his son and changed his name. When Peter was four years old, the family moved back to Liverpool and settled in the Lowlands area of the city. Peter had been quiet and withdrawn throughout most of his childhood, and the fun-loving, outgoing Mona made it in her mission in life to bring him out of his shell. As Mark Lewison describes in his book, Tune In, she was right behind him all the way, pushing, encouraging, dominating, conjoling, controlling, influencing, speaking for him, doing all she could to bring a closed flower into bloom. Pete and his mother, who he affectionately called Mo, idolised each other. Despite his apparent shyness, Peter was also aware that he'd grown into a good-looking, strong, athletic lad and decided to develop a moody pose that soon attracted the girls. By the time he was 17, Pete, as all his friends called him, was a quiet but sporty kid not far from graduating from Liverpool Collegiate Grammar School. He had also, like many his age, developed a love of rock music and often attended dances at the nearby Lowlands Youth Club. In the summer of 1959, Pete suggested to his mother, Mona, that as he and his friends tended to congregate at the best home, instead of hanging out in the house just listening to records, they should clear out the cellar and use that. 
After seeing a TV show about the famous coffee bar in London, The Two Eyes, the idea quickly morphed from just a place to hang out to the idea that they should set up a private club. For Mona, whatever Peter wanted, Peter got. So she quickly approved of the idea and set about making it happen. The house at 8 Hyman's Green has been described as a mini mansion with its 15 rooms and its location set back from the road in a grove of tall trees. Its cellar would soon become a popular destination for local teenagers, by which time it was known as the Casbah Coffee Club, and it became an instant success. The one thing the Casbah offered its customers was a sense of belonging, a place exclusively for teenagers, and membership soon ranked in the thousands. As Colin Manley at the Remo 4 would later recall, a place like the Casbah was something else entirely. It was outside the system. It wasn't owned by the grown-ups. It was ours. The Casbah was Mona's primary focus as a way to keep her boys and their friends close, as her marriage to Johnny was clearly in trouble at the time. Just before the Casbah opened, Pete had been on holiday at an international students' camp in North Wales with his school friends Bill Barlow and Chaz Newby, who we will be meeting again in an upcoming Forgotten Beatles episode. They both played in a group called the Barmen that played at the Lowlands Youth Club. While Pete was a fan of their music, he had shown no particular interest in playing himself. Until the evening that someone left a snare drum and a pair of brushes in the best house following an appearance at the club in the cellar. Pete began to play around with them and noticing her son's interest, Mona did what Mona did. She hustled her son down to a local music store and bought him a smart looking premier drum kit in Blue Mother of Pearl. On the 20th of December 1959, a new group, the Blackjacks, debuted at the Casbah. Their lineup consisted of Pete's friends Bill Barlow and Chaz Newby, plus Ken Brown, who had just been unceremoniously excluded from the Quarrymen, and more on that in the next episode, on guitars, and Pete Best on drums, although he still felt that all he was capable of was to knock a few beats out. Over the next few weeks, Pete learned to muddle his way through some standard rock and roll covers. Pete Best was learning how to be a drummer on the job. Within a few months, Peter developed as a rock and roll drummer. He had the habit of lashing his foot on the bass pedal and in a mathematical manner, bashed out a consistent four beats to the bar, which gave a powerful effect. A few months later, Pete's life took an unexpected turn when in March 1960, he suddenly quit school, just a few months short of graduating. Pete, a star player on the school's rugby union squad, had been expected to do well in his final exams and go on to a career as a physical education teacher, but he just walked away from it all. He never explained why beyond that he was, quote, fed up. There was no job to go to. He spent the next few months quietly at home. He didn't even play his drums as part of a group for nearly four months. Pete Best was about to slip out of the Liverpool music scene. Until the fateful day that the phone rang at the Best household, on Saturday, 13th of August, 1960. Pete was out when Paul McCartney originally called, but Mona Best confirmed that her son still possessed a drum kit and wasn't doing much at the moment. Later that day, when Paul managed to get a hold of Pete, he explained that the Beatles, as the former quarry men were now calling themselves, had been offered two months in Hamburg at around £18 a week each, and that they were leaving on Monday. If Pete was interested, he should bring his drums into town for a quick audition. Pete said he was interested. We cover Pete's time with the Beatles in the main podcast series, and you can hear that story from episodes 14 to 22. But what was Pete's story after his infamous departure, which we also covered in detail in episode 24? 
Part 2, Post-Beatles Following his dismissal from the Beatles, the group's manager, Brian Epstein, immediately offered Pete Best a position as the leader of another group in his growing stable of artists, the Merseybeats. Unsurprisingly, Pete declined. Pete was also approached by Ringo's old band, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, about being Ringo's replacement. He also declined this offer. On the 10th of September, Pete instead made his debut as the drummer for Lee Curtis and the All-Stars at the Majestic Ballroom in Birkenhead. The All-Stars were managed by Joe Flannery, a close friend of Brian Epstein's, who had in fact broken confidence and dropped large hints to Pete about his imminent departure from the Beatles. Hints that Pete hadn't heeded. But once Pete was on the market, Joe Flannery wasted him no time and offered him a job. Pete's position in the All-Stars was untenable from the start in that he would never be in a position to enjoy the kind of attention from the fans that he'd enjoyed in the Beatles. The All-Stars were clearly a vehicle for Lee Curtis, whose real name was Peter Flannery and manager Joe's brother. Pete also didn't appreciate the ads that Joe had put together to promote his debut with the group for they read, quote, We've got the best, yes, great ex-Beatle drummer. Pete complained that he didn't want to be tagged as an ex-Beatle, but despite his wishes, he would never escape it. It was also a step back in terms of venues, as the All-Stars played the local Jive Hall circuit that the Beatles had left behind. Pete expressed the belief that some of the Beatles fans would follow him across to the All-Stars, but while there was a noticeable increase in the All-Stars' popularity, they never approached the Beatles' levels. Before he knew it, Pete had just become another drummer in just another of the many bands on the Liverpool scene. There had been a glimmer of hope when the group headed down to London for a series of BBC and record company auditions in November 1962. The only producer who showed any real interest was Peter Sullivan at Decca, but he had tested the singer and his backing group separately and in the end only had ears for Lee Curtis rather than the All-Stars. Locally, the All-Stars came a distant second in the 1962 Mersey Awards annual poll, ahead of Jerry and the Pacemakers and the Searchers, but behind the Beatles, of course and were invited to play at the awards show. It would be the third time that the All-Stars had played on the same bill as the Beatles since Pete had joined them, but as on the other two occasions, his former bandmates passed by without a word. Decker eventually signed the group, and in early 1963, they released two singles, Little Girl and Let's Stomp, neither of which charted. But by mid-1963, the band had become fed up with Decker's focus on their frontman, and decided to split off on their own to form the original All-Stars which was something of a misnomer as Pete had actually replaced original drummer Bernie Rogers. This new version of the All-Stars was also signed by Decca, in this case with producer Mike Smith, the man who had famously turned down the Beatles. At Smith's suggestion, the band name was soon changed to the Pete Best Four and released their own single for Decca, I'm Gonna Knock On Your Door, which also failed to chart despite appearances on several TV shows, such as Britain's top-rated pop music show Ready Steady Go, to promote it. Following the Beatles' breakup success in the USA, Pete decided to try his hand across the Atlantic, and the Pete Best Four toured extensively throughout the US and Canada. The band became the Pete Best Combo when they added a fifth member. They proved to be a popular live act with their set consisting of a mix of 50s covers and original tunes by band members Wayne Bickerton and Tony Waddington. Bickerton and Waddington would later go on to success in the 1970s writing for acts such as The Flirtations and The Roubettes, among many others. In 1964, Pete did start to open up a little about his time as a Beatle, 
giving interviews to Teen Life and Flip magazines, and even appearing on the US TV game show, I've Got a Secret. The Pete Best Combo recorded for a few small regional labels during their US stint without any real success. Perhaps their most recognisable effort was an album released by Savage Records in 1966 under the title Best of the Beatles, which fooled many buyers who didn't look at the track list too closely into thinking they were getting a Beatles Greatest Hits collection. In 1968, Pete Best quit the music business and returned home to Liverpool, refusing to speak about his time with the Beatles or his subsequent career. He eventually found employment with the civil service rising to a managerial position. In 1979, Best spoke for the first time about his experiences when he served as a technical advisor for the television film Birth of the Beatles. Following its release, he would occasionally appear on various TV shows, including an interview with US late-night chat show host David Letterman in 1982. In 1988, after 20 years of turning down all requests to play drums in public, Best finally relented, appearing for what he thought would be a one-off gig at the Adelphi Hotel in Liverpool at the request of Cavern City Tours. He asked his younger brother Roag to play the drums with him, and afterward his wife and mother both told him, You don't know it, but you're going to go back into show business. That night, the Pete Best Band was born and now regularly tours the world. The Pete Best Band's album, Heyman's Green, made entirely from original material, was released in 2008. In 1995, the surviving Beatles released Anthology One, which featured 10 tracks with Best as drummer. Best received a substantial windfall from the sales, although he was not interviewed for the book or the related documentaries. In 2004, Pete reopened the Casbah Club as a tourist attraction, and at the time of recording, the house at 8 Hyman's Green is being converted into a set of hotel suites. The following year, he was the subject of a documentary, Best of the Beatles. In 2011, streets on a new housing development in Liverpool were named Casbah Close and Pete Best Drive in his honour. It was on one of his many Beatles convention appearances that I first managed to meet and chat with Pete not long after the initial publication of the Before They Were Beatles book and found him to be still a quiet but very gracious man. If you want to know more about Pete Best Story, I recommend the following. Beatle, the Pete Best Story, from Plexus Publishing. This is Pete's autobiography. Although it's going for crazy money these days, if you can find a copy, it's well over $200 just for the paperback. The Beatles, The True Beginnings, is a nice illustrated hardback on the history of the Casbah Club by Roag Best, published by Thomas Dunbucks in 2003. Finding the Fourth Beatle by David Bedford and Gary Popper, published in 2013, is a great book on the various Beatles drummers, many of whom we'll be covering in this podcast series, and includes an in-depth study of Peep's drumming technique. And of course, there's Mark Lewison's mammoth volume on the Beatles' early years, Tune In, which covers Pete's time with the group in Liverpool and Hamburg in great detail. Pete also has his own official website at www.petebest.com and is on Twitter, x at Beatles Pete Best. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before They Were Beatles Presents, The Forgotten Beatles. If you would like to leave a rating or a review on your favourite podcast platform, that would be great. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. If you would like to make a comment or ask a question, you can follow the podcast Twitter account at Before Beatles, or you can email me at alan, A-L-A-N, at beforetheywerebeatles.com. And don't forget to join us next month when we turn the spotlight on the story of the Quarrymen's Ken Brown.
You can also subscribe to the monthly Before They Were Beatles newsletter at beforebeatles.substack.com. The news and updates sections each month will be free to all subscribers. But each month, paid subscribers will also get an exclusive first look at the in-progress updates, the updated and expanded 20th anniversary edition of Before They Were Beatles, author's notes, playlist suggestions and recommended reads. I'm your host, writer and producer, Alan J. Porter. Stay well, stay safe and enjoy peace and love. Some other guy performed by the Savage Young Beatles is used with permission. The Before They Were Beatles podcast series is a production of Megrid Entertainment, a division of 4J's group, LLC.